The reading of the word today comes from 1 Corinthians 14. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have once again gathered us on this Sabbath day, your day that you have given to your people uh, so that we might do exactly what we're doing this morning, which is to uh, rest in your goodness towards us in Christ, uh, to worship you because of this goodness that we've been given in Christ. Um, And so now I pray at this point, portion of our worship gathering uh, that we would be attentive to what it is you have for us from your word through my lips. And so I pray that you would uh, be honored and glorified, that you would open our minds to understand and our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So sort of the, the working title of the entire sermon series has been a unified church Uh, in a fractured world, Uh, and this morning the title of the sermon um, just kind of lends itself is an ordered church in a disordered world. And to say that, that we believe as the body of Christ that we, uh, and to say this boldly, that we believe that we have the answer to this disorder that the world constantly lives in. And I think all of us would say that we appreciate order. Uh, Even if we think our life is chaos, I I would assume that you don't want to remain in that chaotic state forever. Uh, We'd like our homes to be ordered. We'd like our days to be ordered. We'd like our lives to be ordered in general. We'd like the world to be ordered. We'd like everything to kind of have its particular order. Why? Well, because order equals peace. And you know that. When there is order in your day or order in your schedule, it is more peaceful. And whether you knew this or not, that sort of peace that you're experiencing actually is a a way in which you are experiencing God at some level. 
Because God is a God of peace. Because God created the world perfectly, in order. We broke it in the fall, and now God, is, God in Christ is renewing this same world, and one day all will be made new, finally. The brokenness will be mended. Everything will be turned backwards. True order, we could say, will be had once again. And because of this, we don't have to wait to experience God's order kingdom now. Because as we'll see in our text, God is a, is a God of order, not confusion. And therefore, his people are to be an ordered people, not a confused and chaotic people. And this order is seen in a number of different ways uh, through, throughout the church and throughout Christendom. But I believe Paul gives us a few of those ways here in our text this morning of how we are to order our lives as as believers. And so the the three are are this. One is order in worship. Two is order in relationships. And then the third is order in doctrine or order in what we believe. And just so you know, all of these have to do right now with what Paul is addressing. All of these have to do with a worship gathering within a church. But I do think at the same time, all of these apply beyond these walls that we gather in every single week and this service that we sort of walk through together uh, as a body every single week as well. So first, order in worship. So when it comes to worship in the local church context, there are legions of views and opinions of how we are to do that well. I'm sure many exist in this room uh, concerning music and different aspects of our worship gathering. You may not have liked every song that we sang, or you might have thought, wow, I wish we'd have done something a little bit faster or louder, or maybe uh, some more hymns. Maybe we should turn this into a pipe organ uh, and have Andrew do that, you know. Uh, maybe, that, maybe that's where, where you're at. So I'm sure there's a lot of different opinions on those things and preferences, there's a, a newspaper article that I read this week from a U.S. Newspa- newspaper objecting to the new trends in church music. This is what it says. There are several reasons for opposing it, the new, the new music. One, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style because there are so many songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it just fine. It's a money-making scene, and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. Now, you may think that might have showed up in the New York Times recently. Sometimes you get articles like that in the New York Times or, or, uh, or the Washington Post at times. Um, but this is actually written by a pastor in 1723, and he was attacking Isaac Watts. So if you know Isaac Watts, he wrote great hymns like when the, you know, the lewd and loose hymn of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and Joy to the World. You know, that's a party hymn. That's what we are always getting down to at our Christmas parties. And, oh God, our help in ages past. I'm sure you rock out to that all the time. And this is what they were complaining about. 
Obviously, this is not a new argument or a new controversy that has landed in the church in the 21st century for some reason. In 1513, Martin Luther, the great reformer who wrote many a hymns, these hymns stirred a revolt. Uh, John Calvin's opinions on worship, who he thought we, you should, we should only sing the Psalms, and that's it, caused division in his church. The piano was forbidden in the Catholic Church. The pipe organ was once considered uh, the devil's instrument. The drums, the bass guitar, all caused strife when introduced into a church's worship gathering. Even within the, 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 the liturgical aspects of a church, uh, of our church, there have been disagreements of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. But whether you are a, a pipe organ and hymns person or uh, a, full, a full band at full volume person, whether you love liturgy or you prefer something with less structure and a little bit more freedom, Paul's word to you this morning is the same. There is to be order in worship. Why? Verse 26, look there with me. Paul asks, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. So Paul never leaves his main point behind from chapter 12 into uh, the final verses of chapter 14 here where he's dealing with the spiritual gifts. Paul is continually saying that whatever you are doing, you are to be doing it to build up the body of Christ. Not to build up yourself, not to, not to, 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 to practice these gifts so other people can look at you and say how mature you are spiritually or whatever it might be, but we are to be using all of our gifts and everything that God has given us to push people closer to Jesus, whether that's for the first time or for the 100th time. That is the goal. So I've been asked uh, on more than one occasion, why we structure our services the way that we do. And my short answer is always discipleship. This is why we do what we do. It's because we want to, uh, to use these short moments that we have together at their fullest capacity so, so, so we pack, it, pack as much in as we possibly can, all for the sake of, the, of building up the body of Christ to strengthen us, to disciple us, to, to push us closer to Jesus. I know that I've been pushed closer to Jesus this morning already through the singing of God's word this morning, being led by these people up here. And I hope you have as well. So we seek to, to, to do at least three things in our worship gathering, very practically, okay? One, one of the things that we seek to do or seek to be is biblically robust, biblically robust. So we want the Bible to inform everything that we do, and that includes our use of the Bible in worship, but it also includes, uh, includes that the Bible informs what takes place in our worship. So in our own worship uh, service, we begin with a biblical call to worship. 
And this communicates to all present, whether you are a believer or you're an unbeliever, that, that we are called to this gathering right now by God and that we are not here by accident. That God in his providence has brought you here and he's calling us to worship together. And we respond to that throughout the worship service. The next place we insert the scriptures is through the use of the Lord's Prayer. It's a biblical prayer uh, used to teach us how to pray. And so we insert that into the worship service. The next place scripture shows up is through the reading of the word, which is typically another text uh, that complements the preaching text in a direct way. So we read Nehemiah today, which is dealing with how they were ordering their worship service. After they had found the law and all the rebuilding had happened, all that stuff, they're ordering a worship service in that text. Confession of sin follows the scripture reading along with the assurance of the gospel, which is always from the Bible because God assures you of your forgiveness in Christ and that comes from his word. And so all of these elements of the liturgy lead us to the, to the central focus of the worship service for us as, as a Protestant church, which is the preaching of God's word. It's the reason why we're uh, up here, uh, elevated above the communion table. Like this is, this is the central aspect of, of what we do as, the, uh, as a body of believers in this particular church. We lift high the word of God. And then scripture is read once more before communion is served and then the service concludes with the benediction or final charge from the Bible. And so all of this combined gives us a bigger picture of how the story of the Bible is part of our life together as the body of Christ and how the Bible informs us, how it shapes us, and how it orders us, not only on a Sunday, but day by day, moment by moment. So not only do we use the scriptures in worship, we're also informed by the scriptures as it relates to what we do and don't do in our service. So when Paul is speaking here about hymns and revelation and speaking in tongues and interpretation and, um, and all of these things, he's not including things that fall outside of the Bible. All of these things fall within the realm of and the, the, the borders of the scriptures. And so this is known, some of you may know this, this term, but this is known mostly in reform circles as uh, the regulative principle. And, and within this, this principle, and I like this term and, I, and we, we apply it here whether you know that or not, but, but within this principle, it informs what the church includes in their worship gatherings and what we won't include in our worship gatherings. So we have scripture reading, preaching, prayer, the administration of the, of the sacraments. We have uh, singing of God's praises. We have confession and we have affirmation of beliefs. You know, at times we, we could have testimony times or, or things like that where people are declaring God's praise or, or whatever it might be. And, and at the same time we're doing this, drawing some sort of lines around it, at the same time we're offering freedom in how a church might practice these things. So we no longer use a printed bulletin. We use the PowerPoint, you know, not because of anything, you know, crazy. We just, it just saves us money, honestly. But sometimes there can be debate over that, but there's freedom in that. So you might want to use a printed bulletin. 
We're going to use PowerPoint. Uh, things like the lighting or the use of mics or not using mics. Uh, written prayers uh, versus just prayers that you're just praying as the Lord leads you while you're up here. All of those things fall within the, the freedom aspect uh, of this principle. The time of the service. We used to meet in the afternoon. Now we meet in the morning. We have freedom within that. The Bible isn't dictating uh, when the certain time should be on a Sunday. should be on a Sunday, just, just so you know that. Just so you know that I know that that's the right, time, the right day to worship the Lord. So I just want you to know that. But this gives order to our service in a way that's, that's, that's helpful for building up the body through a serious application of the word as well as you not being surprised when you come to a worship gathering like this uh, of something that's maybe out of left field. Maybe one day I decide that I want to zip line from the back to the front with angel wings on and land on the stage to make some sort of point. I don't know what point that would be, but I'm sure we could think of something. But we're not gonna, you're not going to be surprised by that. What you saw today is essentially what you're going to get uh, every other Sunday throughout the year. And, and so we're dictated not by just our own kind of beliefs and personal practices, but what the Word of God says. So when a worship service is, is biblically informed, saturated with Scripture, the service then becomes uh, more intentionally formative, which is the second aspect uh, of, of our worship service. We want to be intentionally formative in this worship gathering. So we order our worship gatherings, and this is on our website, so if you haven't looked at our website, but this is something that we do around what's called the five C's of worship. The first C is that God calls us. God initiates worship, calling us into the presence of the holy, and we respond with joyous praise and celebration. So he calls us. God cleanses us. We confess our brokenness and, and need for healing and grace and hear words of assurance that the gospel is first and foremost for sinners. God consecrates us. It's through scripture that God's spirit consecrates us, forming and reforming us for the adventure of living in God's kingdom. The fourth C is that God communes with us that he's here with us, and, 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 and we're reminded of that through this ancient practice, Christian practice, called the Lord's Supper, where we are united to Christ and one another through the, sh the sharing of the common bread and wine. And then fifthly, God commissions us. We are, we are sent into the world to, to love and to bless it and to make Jesus known in inviting others to follow him. So, so we're being intentional about that, intentionally formative in that way when we worship together on a Sunday. And, and with that, as we're sent out after being shaped by the scriptures and intentionally formed by everything going on in the service, that leads to cultural transformation, which is the third thing that we want to see happen in our worship gatherings. So just like our churches have uh, liturgical practices, whether you're in a church here or you're at another church down the road, everybody has some sort of liturgy that they're working with. The people that we interact with on a daily basis are wrapped up in these 
cultural liturgies. And some of you may get wrapped up in these cultural liturgies as well. As you leave this place today, being reminded again and again of the gospel, you're thrust back into your work environment and around your, your, your workmates and all of that. And, and you're, again, you're being consumed by these cultural liturgies that control what you do, how you live, how you speak, what you do with your money, all of those things. And so oftentimes, uh, those that we interact with uh, feel as though there is no escape from these cultural liturgies. And so being a church with with strong liturgical practices uh, keeps us from, from slipping into the allowance of allowing the culture to influence our worship gatherings Uh, and and allowing it to enter into the church broadly, which is exactly what was happening in the church in Corinth. They were continuing to allow the the cultural liturgies to seep into their lives personally, uh, which then allowed allowed it to come into the church as a whole. This is why Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, essentially, because of that reason. So even more, a strong liturgical practice can and will influence the culture as our people are being transformed within these practices week in and week out. Because because we're committing ourselves to this rhythm of liturgy each week, we challenge each other to, to, to set our weekly and daily rhythms to this as well. Because, because God doesn't just call you to worship on a Sunday. He does, but it's not just on Sunday. He calls you to worship in your vocation on Monday morning. You are called to worship God in your vocation. Confession of sin and the assurance of God's forgiveness is is just as applicable and life-giving in the moment uh, a parent lashes out in anger toward their child as it is during these solemn, quiet moments on a Sunday morning. And finally, having the understanding that when the benediction happens at the end of the service each Sunday, it is is the sending out of God's people to be instruments of his redemptive work in this world. And all of this takes place in about an hour and a half, 90 minutes. Sometimes it's a little longer. So things need to be ordered in order for this to happen. And this is what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to grasp as well. And so he gets very practical about, about first, he's, he's still addressing these two particular gifts that the, that the Corinthians are obsessed with, which is speaking in tongue and prophesying. And so first, in verses 27 through 28, he says these words, If any speaks in a tongue... Let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So Paul is explaining how to apply what he has said in verse 26 about how all things are to be done to build up the body of Christ. So so it appears, although it's not altogether clear, that with the eagerness to flex their their gift ability muscles, the Corinthians were, one, talking over one another, and two, they were practicing the gift incorrectly because they did not have an interpreter, but they were just kind of going with it. 
Which is why Paul probably, why Paul says in, in verse 23 that we looked at last week that if an unbeliever comes into your midst and they see you all doing this, you're all speaking in these different languages, nobody knows what's being said, nobody can even really hear or pay attention, they are going to say that you are out of your minds. So if you can imagine, even right now, if there were if there was just one other person speaking out loud while I was trying to speak, it would be confusing. You would be like, what is happening right now? This place is insane. But imagine uh, two, two other people, so three people total trying to talk all at the same time. And I'm just talking about in English, not in other languages, but if you want to throw another language in there, and then it just gets wild. It would just be this, this, this mix of noise that no one could interpret, no one would understand, and no one would be helped at all. No one's built up. And so Paul says to these people, keep quiet. It's better for you and it's better for the church if you just remain quiet. Because in order to be helpful, and you all know this, you have to be understood. To the same can be said for prophecy, even though prophecy seemed to be Paul's favorite gift in a lot of ways uh, next to tongues um, because he thought it was more helpful. He says in verses 29 through 32, uh, essentially the same thing about prophecy, that, that we need to be ordered, that in order for this to be helpful, uh, we need to make sure that we are simply Taking turns, just as we would tell our children, take turns, making sure that when you offer a hymn or you offer a lesson or you offer a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation, that there is an order that guides the surface to make it as fruitful as possible. So again, you can already see that Paul is not disparaging any gift here. He's not saying don't do that gift because it's stopped or ceased to exist. He's just saying you need to do it in a way that is going to build up the body, a way that is intelligible and understood and helpful. So it's okay to have these gifts, Paul says. It's okay to even desire them if you don't have them, but to be most helpful with any of the gifts, all things need to be done, and Paul uses this word, decently and in order. Decently meaning in a way that is intelligible, understandable, helpful, and edifying. And it's an interest, interesting to note that Paul uses this, this same adverb in Romans chapter 13, verse 13, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 12, to describe Christians living decently, living in this way, but he's describing it in a way that we need to be living decently before outsiders those who are not in the church. Which lets us know that there is a right way and there is a wrong way for the church to live before a watching world. We, we, we can't just say, well, this is who we are, this is what we do, um, we're not, we don't care if you can't understand it, you know, you're welcome to come, but we're not going to apologize for anything that we do here, we're not going to, you know, try to help you along in this, in this regard. Uh, there is a, it just lets us know we can't, we can't do that. There is a right way that we need to do things, which is ordered and intelligible, and there's also a wrong way to do things. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. 
If you want to be fruitful, if you want to be helpful, if you want a watching world to see and hear and experience the gospel, you need to practice your gifts in an ordered way. And this is seen in our individual lives, but it's also in our life together as a worshiping community. And as we, and as we do this, we're not seeking to communicate um, how slick our worship gatherings are or how talented the musicians are or how good the preaching is. That's not our goal. We do it ultimately to image God. If you look there at verse 33, Paul says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, which means we are not to be a people of confusion, but a people of peace who move toward each other and towards outsiders in the same love that God has moved toward us in Christ so that we can be at peace with him we are to bring that into our gatherings as well. So we're not only to have this sort of order and peace in our worship gatherings, we're also to have this sort of peace and order in our relationships, which are taking place in our worship gatherings week in and week out, because the lack of order the Corinthians had is also caused by a lack of order in the relationships that they had specifically the relationships between men and women in the church. So order in relationships. So within these verses where this pops up in verses 33 through 35 lies another controversial topic in the church and outside the church dealing with the relationship between men and women. So there are a couple of ways that gender roles have been viewed throughout, throughout in, within the church and outside the church. So one is through the lens of American traditionalism, which says men lead, women follow, period. End of discussion. The other lens is through the lens of secular progressivism, where there are no differences between men and women, and if you say there's differences between men and women, uh, it is unjust for you to even say that. Now, the challenge for us as a a Bible-believing church is to always, always be shaped by the Scriptures when it comes to gender differences no matter what the culture is doing or saying, period. A major part of this, of of the reason why there are so many varying opinions and um, practices throughout our world and within the church, is because the culture is so disordered around this particular issue of men and women, which you would think is obvious but it's not. And we believe that the Bible gives us clarity on this matter. And the church has the opportunity to intelligibly demonstrate this in our own relationships with each other, to to display God's good order, which begins at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2 when God creates man 
and woman in his image. He doesn't create man in his image and then woman in another image. He creates man and woman in his image. So God does not look at at men as better or more important and then women as lesser and less important. God does not view us in that way, thankfully. God has created men and women equally in their image-bearing of him, but differently in the ways in which they display his image as a man or as a woman. And these ways are what we would say are complementary. We need both of them. So I want you to hold on to, to, that, to that, that truth from Genesis 2 as we delve into verses 33 through 35 because there's a lot of misunderstanding of these verses amongst Christians. I'm sure when James was reading those words, uh, women keep quiet, I'm sure some of you cringed at those words. So I want you to hold on to Genesis 2 while we look at these these things as we kind of wrestle with these misunderstandings and hopefully I'll be able to clear these things up for you. But because, because the outcome of these verses for Paul and for us is not to help us land on American traditionalism, nor is it to help us land on uh, secular progressivism either. What these verses are going to do for us is, is hopefully to subvert both of those ideas and help us to be better shaped by what the Bible says. So let me read verses 33 through 35 again for us. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So, starting in verse 33, we have to understand, or that second part of verse 33, we have to understand that Paul's comments here, this is this, this is the problem with misinterpretations uh, and, and bad teaching is that a lot of preachers and leaders in Christian circles take Scripture out of context. Which take, they, just, they just say, all right, that's a good one for me to apply to my marriage, you know? My wife's going to love this, you know? Um, and they, they lift it out of its context, and they take it over here, and it's separate from 1 Corinthians 14. And some, maybe some of you didn't even know that was in 1 Corinthians 14. You're like, I didn't even know where that was until just now. And it's because of bad teaching and bad theology. And so we have to understand that Paul's comments here are spoken in the context of the passage that we are in this morning, but also in the greater context of the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. So there's even a bigger context in that regard, but also in the greater context of the entire scriptures as well. And all of that is informing what Paul is saying here. 
So we need to understand who is Paul speaking to and then what are they speaking about. So in some of your translations, or I think probably in most of your translations, it, it, it says women. Uh, some of them might say wives instead of women, but I, I think either is fine because the Greek word that is used there could be translated either way, but I think wives is more plausible because of verse 35. Paul's encouragement to go home and talk to your husbands. I think it's more plausible in that way. Um, but, but one, in the broader cultural context of what Paul is speaking into, the husband was the spokesman of the family. He was the one who did the public speaking on behalf of the family. And so if a wife spoke during a worship gathering in this way, especially if she was being disruptive, it would bring shame upon that family. Secondly, the New Testament church was based on the Jewish synagogue. That's, that's sort of the worship gathering model that they had during that particular time. And so the New Testament church was also based on the Jewish synagogue. And the elders, who were men, biblically, were the ones called to weigh in on the teaching. So, 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 so Paul could say, just to paraphrase, uh, be silent because it's the elder's job to do the weighing and judging of prophecies, not yours. So if we want to have order here, we need to do it accordingly. And so it's the elder's jobs to do this, uh, not anybody else's job even, but especially the, the, the wives who are speaking out of turn. So the wives should not challenge their husbands publicly, even if they disagreed with him. So, and this is what Paul is teaching. And nevertheless, even, even though that might still sound a bit harsh, uh, Paul doesn't want these women to be left in the dark. Uh, he's not just saying, hey, just shut up and be quiet and just hope that God gives you some sort of revelation personally as a woman. No, he says, no, the appropriate way in which to do that is at home, asking your husband, and you can have this conversation there. But he says in verse 5, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. So Paul is, is instilling within them order, not just within the church gathering, but also in the home as well. So let me just say that this is not a text that is, to say all that, to say it, this is not a prescriptive text. This is not a verse, men, that you hold up to a woman and say, see, Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, you are to be quiet. It's not what that's here for. This is just another way in which Paul is calling for order in the church. And, 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 if, and if this was Paul's intent, as some had taught, have, have taught that it was, this would actually contradict the scriptures. It would contradict what Paul has already said earlier about women praying and prophesying back in chapter 11 about the head coverings. And even so, just if you need more argument around it, to, this, this, this verb to be silent can mean, can mean to be silent, but it, but it can also mean to become silent, to say nothing, or to hold one's peace. So never in the New Testament does it ever mean total silence, ever. It's never used like that. Rather, it's used to communicate silence for a time. Lance led us in silence for a time. We didn't get mad at him, did we? Taking silence to, 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 uh, to silently confess our sins personally. 
So it said to be silent for a time or, or keeping quiet about something specific or becoming quiet while others speak. And in the context of our text, almost everyone is being limited in their speech in some fashion or another. Paul has already told two groups of people to be quiet. People speaking in tongues incorrectly and people prophesying incorrectly. He's told both of those groups, if you can't do this right, you need to be quiet. Yet, unfortunately, even though all of that's fairly clear, unfortunately, this is still a text that is misinterpreted, and some continue to see the demand for silence upon women in the church as an absolute rule. Now, considering, and I did, I did a count last night, uh, half of our church members are women. Half of them. Uh, and I, so I think it would be pastorally unfaithful of me if I didn't take a short side note here to say something about this. Because I know that some of you, unfortunately, have grown up in churches or grown up in families um, uh, or, or, or simply just attended a church maybe with a friend uh, where this sort of thing was taught, that you were to be quiet, that you were never to talk. And there's a good chance that you've been hurt by this or confused by this. And so you don't know your role. You don't know how to use your gifts. You don't know how to, to, to worship correctly or you don't know what it means. And I want to say just, just that I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry that you've had to, to, to experience that, that you've had to, had to walk through that sort of oppressive and poorly informed teaching by insecure men who don't take the Bible seriously. Because that's not what the Scriptures teach. That's not what Paul is saying here. And most importantly, that's not how God sees you. And I would say without women, without women in in a lot of ways, the church as a whole would not exist. In almost every letter that Paul writes to the church, at some spot in his letter, He is thanking people. And most of the times in those letters, uh, they are majority women that he is thanking for their work in his ministry and in the work of the church, church planting. In at least one church that we know of, the church in Philippi um, that Paul planted, the reason that church was planted was because of one woman named Lydia who is faithful to pray and to offer up her home as a place in which this new church plant could worship. Acts 16, if you want to check me on that. And if I were to ask you, who are Jesus' disciples? Bible quiz. Most of you would say the 12, the men. And you'd be wrong. Yes, they are Jesus' disciples. They are the apostles, you know. They are disciples. But you'd be wrong if you said, well, those are the only ones that are Jesus' disciples because Jesus had a lot of disciples. 
And if you, if you do a thorough reading of the Gospels, you will see that a lot of those disciples were women. They were part of Jesus' ministry. And I can say with confidence, here at CTK, if we didn't have women serving in the many capacities that they served, both seen and unseen, we would flounder men. And you know that to be true. And I'll just say, if you're, if, men, if you're upset at this remark, or these, 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 these remarks that I've made, you may need to step up. Maybe you're not doing a good job leading in your home. Maybe your wife is taking on more of the responsibility that uh, you should be taking on as a man and as a husband and as a father. You need to lead your wife. You need to wash her in the word as the scriptures call you to do. You need to lead. God calls you to that. And let the Bible, not the culture, shape your way of thinking and shape your way of practice. Because a lot of the ways in which we think about men and women in relationship to one another, even within the church, surprisingly enough, comes from outside of the Bible. It's the way that we were brought up. It's, 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 it's uh, these outside ideas about, uh, you know, this American traditionalism and this is how women are to act and how men are to act and, and all of those things. A lot of that is outside of what Scripture teaches. So, so to default, if this is you, to default to verses like uh, wives submit to your husbands in Ephesians or this verse, Keep quiet. Women are not permitted to speak here. If that is your default or any other pastor's default, that is poor leadership and, poor, and really poor understanding of what the Bible is actually teaching about the relationship between men and women in the church. So if you're intimidated by women in certain leadership roles, then, then you may need to grow in your own understanding of what it means to be a complementarian church. Just to, because I know some of you are getting very nervous right now. So just to remind you that we are a complementarian church, that we want to seek to apply the, the, what, what God calls us to as men and women in this, in this, in this local body. So if you're offended by that or intimidated by that, then you need, to, you need to, to, to go back and study what does it mean to be complementarian? What is God talking about there? Because we want to be a place where we value and, and, and communicate that we need the gifts of both men and women in this local church. And if we don't have both, because of the way in which God has set it up, we will have disorder, which is what is happening in Corinth. They're not understanding the roles that they have. And so there is disorder within the church. And the exact same thing can happen here if that's the case. And so both of these points that we've looked at so far, order in worship and order in our relationships, have implications on our final point, which is to have order in our doctrine. 
or to have order in what we believe as a body. Because to be disordered in our worship or disordered in our relationships shows that we're probably disordered in our doctrine. I've given this equation before, and it's not mine, but I don't know who came up with it, so I'm claiming it now as mine. Um, You can quote me on that. Um, Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. So what you, we, a lot of us will say, well, I believe this, I believe it, but then you look at your life and you're not actually practicing that what you say you believe, well then that is your answer. This is what you actually do believe. It wasn't what you said you believed, but your practice showed, showed it. And so this is what is happening in Corinth. Their, their, their stated belief uh, is different than their actual belief, and so their actual, or, or their actual practice, and so their actual belief is coming out, and so Paul is correcting them. Look at verses 36 through 38. Paul says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, a spiritual person, he should, not, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul returns to the original problem the Corinthians were having concerning their gifts and concerning, concerning their elite understanding and he begins this, this, this little section here with this sarcastic question in verse 36 that implies that the Corinthians believe that God has only spoken to them and no other churches across the world. So Paul is saying, do you, you think the Bible has only gotten to you? Do you think this message of the gospel, that, that you're the only ones who, who know it and understand it? Paul's like... I, Of course not. That's ridiculous that you would even think that. One commentator writes this. It really helpfully kind of brings all of these ideas together that we've been talking about this morning. He says, quote, If prophets all prophesy at once so no one is built up or encouraged, if they do not wait for their prophecies to be judged by others, if wives sit in judgment publicly on the prophecies of their husbands, then these Corinthians are putting themselves above Scripture. Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. They believed that they were above the Scriptures. And so to ignore the Scriptures is to be disordered in your doctrine, in what you believe. Paul makes clear that all the other churches that he has had a hand in planting and shepherding, have understood, uh, understood it correctly and applied it in this way as Paul has described. He's letting them know, hey, the pattern of belief is this, and you're the only one that's not doing this. Your doctrine is confused. Your doctrine is disordered. How can the, the Corinthian church ignore the wider church as if they were the only ones who knew how to worship? or the only ones who knew how to practice their gifts, or the only ones who knew what to do in relationships with the opposite sex. Because how, we, how do we know how to order our worship? 
How do we know how to order our relationships? How do we know how to order our doctrine? How do we know how to order what we believe? Is it to look at the culture? Is it, is it, is it, is it to, to Google it? I, mean, I know a lot of people like to do that with, with certain things, but do we say, how do we, how do we do this? Google, tell me. No. As a Christian church, that is not the answer. The answer for those three questions is the Bible alone. That's how we understand it. That's how we order our doctrine. That's how we order our relationships. That's how we order our worship and our entire life. And all of this brings the order that our hearts all desire. And just to to paraphrase Augustine's famous quote, our hearts are disordered until it finds its order in thee. And some of you may be here with a disordered heart. You need Jesus to order it. You need Jesus to set things straight. Because Jesus is the one that we find our order in. Why? Because Jesus is the one, the only one, who entered the chaos of this broken, disordered world on our behalf and brings to us order in a disordered world that nothing else can. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we take for granted the fact that we live in a country like ours where we have so much access to so many things, but particularly within the church that we have access to so many uh, Bibles and Christian books and teachings and podcasts and everything is at our disposal and yet we still misunderstand and misapply your word. So God, I pray, even as we've heard some hard words today and challenges, that we would seek to apply the scriptures directly to our worship, to our relationships, to our doctrine, to all of life, so that our orders might be, uh, so that our life might be ordered in a way that doesn't point to us, but points to you who is a God not of confusion, but a God of peace, who has, who has perfectly ordered his world and redeemed his world through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.